Hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. I'm the one with the croaky voice. Yeah, I mean, but we are we, we are back. We, we are like a machine with the we number are. of podcasts we're churning out. We are the Erling Haaland of Is that right? podcasts. That's exactly That's what we are. We just churn on and on and on, and it's absolutely no surprise to anyone that we keep scoring. These headphones that I'm wearing, though, were... They've been worn a lot this morning oh dear. by other people, and they're slightly sweaty. Okay. And it's, you know that feeling, which in, in a book called uh, The Meaning of Lift, which Douglas Adams did with John Lloyd, yes, where they, read if they took towns and cities and they used them, turned them into other words, uh-huh, like uh-huh. a dictionary, and yeah. shubriness was, was described as the vague, unpleasant feeling when sitting in a seat that has been warmed by someone else's bottom. Yes. Well, that's I have that with these headphones. They've okay. been warmed by a very good journalist called Andrew Harrison, but he's uh-huh. got sweaty ears. <laughs> he's got sweaty ears, Andrew, <laughs> and his sweaty ears, as he's known in the bit. Yes. So anyway, I apologise for my cough or, or whatever, because we're in a studio where I don't have a mic cut button, so I'm no. just going to have to cough. We're just going to cough, aren't we? All over you. Andrew. You're going to hear us roar. Yeah. A missive from Helen Duxbury, who emailed us at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Hello, Simon. Hello, Matt. I'm a long-term listener to your wonderful podcast and have read many new authors as a result, so thank you. I just listened to your episode with Catriona Ward whilst on my run. Like Matt, I do not like horror films at all. And listening to your conversation, I was intrigued to hear that Matt does, however, read horror. Mm. I was interested by the Stephen King discussion and realised that at my ripe old age, I have never read one of his novels. Therefore, could you recommend one for me to read to start my Stephen King journey. Many thanks. <clears throat> I mean, the class... I mean, well, the first one I read was The Stand. OK. So I would suggest that... I prefer his earlier stuff. So The Stand and Carrie. Um, isn't The Stand... The Stand's pretty big, though, isn't oh, it's, it? It's a huge it's, tone. It's, no, it's, it's a little good. bit intimidating. I mean, it no, is very good, but no, it's, I, yeah. I enjoyed it. He did a book called Misery, which made me feel so miserable uh, that I decided not to read any more. Oh, right. For, for quite a long while, which I okay. did. Okay. But he, 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 you know, he is extraordinary. So I would begin at The Stand. Okay. I, I wouldn't because it's just too big. I would, I mean, it's the most obvious, and you've already sort of uh, mentioned it. Uh, Carrie, I think, is superb and is not very long. And you probably... Most of us know the sort of what's going on with Carrie. You don't need to have seen the movie or read the book. Uh, so you pretty much know what's coming. I think we've mentioned before the four seasons, so the four short stories of which one of them was uh, made into Shawshank. And those are four good short stories. So I, I remember reading them on a plane uh, and getting through like two of them on, on the flight. So I would I recommend that. He also wrote a fantastic book called On Writing, which is all yes. about the craft of writing. That is all <clears> very good. Which I would recommend. Um, an email <coughs> from Ross. Dear fiction and non-fiction, oh, yeah. love the pod, especially your Q&A episodes. I love hearing about what your author guests read and where they write, etc. Now, one of the questions you often ask is when they last visited a library. And this made me think about the last time that I had uh, visited a library. And it occurred to me it's probably been about 20 years. So, last weekend... I took myself down to my local library, Central Library in Leeds, uh, and I got a library card, went browsing, and I came away with two novels, In a House of Lies by Ian Rankin and Look Both Ways by Linwood Barclay, thanks to hearing him 
on your podcast. Two very good authors there. Uh, I feel great about being a member of my local library and have been telling everyone I know about it. I'd encourage all your listeners to pop down to theirs too and sign up. Even if you don't take any books out, it just feels good to be part of the community. I'm looking forward to future podcasts, which will inform my library borrowing. Keep up the good work, Ross in Leeds. Yes, let's hear it for the libraries. Also, school libraries. There are still unbelievably some head teachers who don't understand the importance of a school library because if you don't get the habit at school then you might not get that's it, true yeah uh, forever ross thank you if you'd like to get in touch with us you can email us at any time the address is books of the year at yahoo.com you can follow us on twitter at books of the year and our dms are open does it do, i don't know what that, that means work? we have to <clears> flick <throat> a button for the dms to be open do we they're already open oh, they're already there are they brilliant uh, we're also on instagram at pick any page at pick any page, right? Yes. Um, we're keeping the mayor of London waiting. I think he was wearing your headphones. Oh, was he? Does Sadiq have sweaty ears? No, he doesn't. No, no. Excellent. I'll reveal In which that case, now. let's bring him on. Okay, uh, books of the year with Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. His book is Breathe. Tackling the climate emergency. Hello, Sadiq. How are you? Good to see you again, Sam. Not bad at all. Very, very nice to see you. Um, just as, a, as an opening gesture, I'm putting my puffer on the table. My uh, salbutamol inhaler, uh, because I'm asthmatic. You're asthmatic. Matt, are you asthmatic? I'm not. Could no. you pretend to be? I will. I way... mean, just to, just to blend in. I'll, it's I'll not contagious, by the way, Matt. So it's, uh, <laughs> we're not going to give it to you. It's the, uh, it's the, the toxicity outside that is. Clearly. Yeah. 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 You, yeah. Well... You need to do... Oh, you are doing something about that. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. So um, so the book is Breathe, colon, Tackling the Climate Emergency. Um, I've got uh, like an advanced copy, but we do have a finished copy. So yes, Matt, describe, do. judge this book by the cover. Tell us what it looks like. So we've got a sort of rainbow of colours yeah. on the on that front cover, which is mean it's going to stand out uh, on in the bookshop shelves when you go in. So we start with the dark blue at the top, then lighter blue, green, yellow and red. And each uh, strip there is dominated by one word, breathe, tackling the climate emergency, and then in black, on white at the bottom, Sadiq Khan. And uh, and something from Ed Miliband in the middle, a true climate leader in a nice little yellow sun. Uh, OK, so, th- so that's that's the book. And, and b- before we get into the contents of it, was there always... Did you always think, I, I would quite like to write a book, and I'm just not quite sure... Where, I don't know, could I write a memoir? What would it be? Could I write a history of London? Have you always wanted to write a book, and then this just came along? Uh, uh, no, first I've never had my the front. This is the first time I've had the front of the front of my cover dissected. The way Matt's, Matt's done it, so I feel a bit vulnerable now, Simon. But so, so, so no, look, I've not I've not always dreamed of writing a book. I didn't when I was ten dream of being the king of the world or, or anything like that. But that's familiar. Yeah. Mm. yeah, but I tell you this: the 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 memory of writing this book is far better than the experience. It's a lot harder than I thought, and the process is a lot. I mean, you've written a book, you know what it's like, but. You know, you you can't be precious about the book because your editor's got a really big role in getting rid of the rubbish and get rid of the the, the pattern and stuff. But no, and basically what happened was well, when I was running to be chair of C40, C40 had the hundred mega cities around the world, and I ran to be the, the the chair of that. A number of mayors I spoke to were asking loads of questions about how we'd managed to make the progress in London, and, and a few of them said, "Why don't you write about it?" And you, know, you sort of dismiss it. But a couple of Christmases ago, um, it would have been Christmas. 21 I had had some time between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve and it's a quiet time it was a quiet time for me and I did it with a pen and 
book. I didn't I didn't dictate or didn't type. I'm very poor typist. So I, I'm long manuscript, and I broke the back of what became the book. But had I not had the time that Christmas, so is that a lockdown Christmas? Is that it was a... it was the first Christmas after where we had we had the sort of mixture of I remember it by by fireworks night because I built those fireworks. It was the combination of the drones and the surprise fireworks. It was so it was Christmas. It was COVID. COVID Covid mark two or three. So the the first bad Christmas was was December twenty twenty, but that was the first Christmas after we'd seen the lessons of Covid. Because one of the things I talk about in in the book is the phrase used by Churchill: "Never waste a crisis." And I didn't want to waste the crisis of Covid in relation to the improvements we we saw. And so I wasn't desperate to write a book. I wasn't desperate to. Uh, this certainly is not a political memoir. It's a personal story about our journey and my journey in particular. In relation to how somebody like me, who if you if you'd known me you know ten years ago you'd be shocked. Why? Um, because look when I so I tell the story in the book and I, I try to be as honest as I possibly can. Um, is so when I was a lawyer, uh, you know I, I became a partner pretty early. I was sort of two years qualified and I became a partner, and I, and our office was on museums Museum Street in Bloomsbury, and I didn't negotiate a pay rise. I negotiated a car park space for my my black Saab convertible. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, swanky, swanky, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then, Anissa was born, my oldest, and uh, the car and having a two seater with a car seat in the back is a, is a mare for your back. It's a nightmare. And so, uh, we we went from a I laugh about it now. We went from a Saab convertible. I live in Tooting, by the way. I always have to a Land Rover Discovery four wheel drive, right? And I kid you not, I left London probably three times, never off off roading and stuff. Uh, when I was an MP, and, and Simon and I, you know, had many exchanges uh, when when he was, you know, uh, uh, doing the PMQs, and I was a baby MP, I voted for a new runway at Heathrow Airport. So the reason why I say why is because I'm not somebody, even now, and I don't claim to be the most radical green activist, but nor am I somebody who's always felt passionately or understood the twin challenges of climate change and air pollution. My journey is. A self-serving, self-interest one. You mentioned at the start, uh, Simon, your asthma. Uh, in 2014, I thought I was a pretty well-informed. You know, I'd been a cabinet minister and in the shadow cabinet. I'd been a parliamentarian for many years. I, 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 I agreed to run the London Marathon. Yes, to raise money for charity, but be ostensibly to suck up to the standard, whose endorsement I wanted because I was thinking about running for mayor. Right. So I run the marathon. Uh, you know, train for eight to ten weeks. Train on the main roads to get marathon type um, conditions. Mm-hmm. A few months afterwards, um, I've not been feeling great f- for a few weeks after the marathon. Uh, I'm clearing my throat a lot. At night time, I have difficulty. I cough a lot. Playing football, I'm uh, out of breath quicker than I normally am. When, I, when I'm jogging, I'm, I'm not as fit as I was. And I, I put it down to fitness. I'm, I'm just not fit. And, you know, my wife said, listen, you, you've got to go to the doctors because this is not like you and stuff. And so, you know, Sarah, they came with me, went to the GP. She didn't trust me to go by myself. Went to the GP. And, and it, it knocked me for six being diagnosed with asthma. I'll tell you why. You took out your pump now and, you know, neither Matt and I, you know, uh, were surprised. But when I was at school, in my entire school, there's probably a thousand kids at my school, only two people I can remember having asthma. They didn't really play sports. They didn't get involved in sports in the playground. It was, it was the exception and so I've always thought asthma is, you know, for people who are really unwell, not somebody reasonably fit. And, the, and my doctor said, and I then met other experts, adult onset asthma is growing. And the reason it's growing is because of this thing we can't see called particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide and nitrogen oxide. And I, and I self-taught and learn about some of these issues. And, and interestingly, 
a lot of the things that cause climate change cause air pollution. And in this great city of ours, around 4,000 people a year die linked with air pollution across our country between nine and 10,000, across the globe, 9 million people, 99% of the world's population is breathing in toxicity. You can't see it. So, Sadiq, the reason I uh, really like your book is that um, it explodes a myth for me about climate change being a, a sort of vote loser, being that everyone's apathetic about the about the climate. And I think it, um, I think you can draw a line from that to um, the myth that everyone's apathetic about politics. We're doing a we're doing a podcast, but one of the biggest podcasts around at the moment is the Alistair Campbell Rory Stewart one. Rest is politics. People clearly are interested in politics, and I see why. Bluntly, if you, if you had been in power for 13 years and all you've got to show for it is a divisive Brexit vote, then it plays into your hands to say that uh, everyone's apathetic about politics. But the truth is people are interested in this and that it isn't a vote loser. I just want you to tell the story about how how the sort of scales fell from your eyes as far as realising that this is this is something I can campaign on and govern on that actually people are going to buy into. Yeah, well, well, firstly, it's worth just pointing out something that wasn't the case 10 years ago, even five years ago. If we were speaking five years ago even, we, we, we said climate change and did word association, we'd say it affects them, Global South, Sub-Saharan Africa, Bangladesh, islands in the West Indies, and in the future... 20, 30 years time. I think last summer's temperatures, 41 degrees Celsius. The fact we've had flash flooding across our city and across the country in the last couple of years reminds us it's very much an us issue and a now issue. That's the first point to make. And I mentioned some of the stark facts in relation to air pollution. But what I do in this book is, you know, is, is talk about some of the obstacles I faced. And by the way, it applies to you, whether you're a politician, whether you're talking to your neighbours, your friends, your family, you're an activist. Or, you know, or whether you're you know, a politician. Some of the obstacles I faced, and one of them is priorities, deprioritization, and how you address them. And so I start off with uh, the issue of fatalism. There's, there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. Why bother, right? To apathy, uh, doesn't really affect me. Cynicism, they're all the same. Uh, deprioritization, actually, health is more important, education is more important, the economy is more important. Uh, hostility, uh, a vocal minority setting the narrative and giving the impression it's unpopular, which scares politicians from taking action. Cost, the jargon is just transition, uh, and gridlock. You know, how, does, how do you get left-wing governments, right-wing governments to work together, global north, global south, mayor, national government, and so forth. And what I'm trying to do in an unarrogant way is through my story, and it's not a political memoir, but it is my story, is, is provide a handbook that all of us can use. So, Matt, when you're speaking to... A neighbour, and uh, he or she says to you, uh, "Well, you know, is this uh, this is a conspiracy? You know, this is just you know nonsense," which is which is which is the point about hostility. You can hopefully, having read the chapter, respond to the point your neighbour's making, or if you know Simon's speaking to somebody, you know, at the local church, and they're saying, "Look, there's they're all the same. What's the point?" Mm. You can respond in relation to how by building coalitions, you can address the issue of cynicism. You know, some of the people that I've met in, on this journey have been the most cynical people about about my profession, right? Because history tells them my profession lets them down. In advance of an election, oh, yeah, this is a really important issue, you know, just, uh, vote for me, I'll address climate change. Once I win the election, other things uh, take over. I don't want to give confidence about how to win arguments and how to win 
elections. And it's, you know, and I think it's interesting. And I say this, you know, just because of they're members of my tribe. But, you know, the Labour Party now is talking about, you know, climate change. You know, they're talking about a fairer, greener future. And, you know, and I, I, that's a source of pride to me. Can I, <clears throat> I want to ask you about hope. Because you want this book to be a hopeful book. It Absolutely. Is, it, it, is a, it is a hopeful book. Um, and you mentioned uh, our previous conversations in another life when I was at Five Live and doing Parliament, covering politics and, uh, and so on. On that show, twice I interviewed an incredibly impressive man who died just about six months ago, James Lovelock, independent scientist. He was the guy who invented Gaia theory. Um, deeply, deeply impressive man. But he said, in his opinion, it was too late, that the tipping point had already been reached. Fortunately, uh, a couple of months after that, I put his arguments to Al Gore, who was talking about his movie, uh, was it called um, The Unfortunate Truth, and Unfortunate um, Truth? Something yeah, like Uncomfortable that. Truth. Uncomfortable Truth, yeah. And Al Gore said, I don't believe it's too late. And obviously politicians have to say, it's not too late, otherwise we would just mm. give up. But could you just address that? Because this wasn't an uninformed man. This was a, a man deeply immersed in science, and he thought we'd already reached the tipping point. How do we know that he's... Not right. Well, well, well look, I, I, I think there is st still an opportunity for us to um, make change. I'll give you examples from London. To, to, when I was running to be mayor, King's College, world's leading experts, said it will take us 193 years to bring the air within London within lawful limits. 193 years. And now they say we'll have done it by 2025. I think you'd still be mayor in 193 years. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. Uh, well, you'll definitely still be presenting. <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, but but the point being is is we in just two years managed to reduce the toxicity in London by almost 50 percent. Right. We're going to bring out air within legal limits by 2025, and so I think there is reason there there is a reason to be hopeful. But I'll give you another example. Um, when you look at uh, the reason why, by the way, you're right to remind us of the reasons for the pessimism. Is when you look at all the countries that signed the Paris Accord in 2015, all the countries that signed it, almost 200 countries, do you know of the 200 countries, how many countries are on schedule to meet the promises made in 2015? Uh, three. Three out of 100. Matt? All of them. One. Oh. I win. <laughs> you win. But let me see, ask you another question. Of the uh, 97 cities that are members of C40, which I chair, from LA to New York, from Paris to Barcelona, from Madrid to Freetown, uh, from Dhaka to um, uh, you know Barcelona, uh, Madrid, Milan. Of the of the 97 countries who are members of C40, 97 bigger pardon cities, 97 mega cities members of C40. How many of those cities are on course to meet the promises made in Paris in 2015? I'm going to suggest that London might be. No, no. What what percentage of those cities oh, are on okay. course to meet? Paris Accord. I'm going to say all of them again. I'm sticking with all of them. I'm going to say three. More than two thirds. Yes. So oh, I win that you one. You win that so one. The, <laughs> the, so, so there is a reason to be hopeful. And the phrase I use in my book is, is national governments are the delayers because they can't deny anymore. Whereas cities are the doers. This is the chapter called Gridlock, where I, where I give reasons for hope. There's a great phrase used by an American mayor where he said, if the 19th century was a century of, of empire, 20th century, a century of nations. The 21st century is about cities and uh, mayors, and particularly because we're the root cause of many of these problems, cities, right? Climate, uh, carbon emissions. But actually, greater urbanization 
meet people moving to cities gives us an opportunity to to bring about change. And I'm incredibly hopeful that we can tackle successfully climate change and air pollution. Um, I just want to ask you uh, about something which you do tackle in the book. What's it got to do with mayors? Some people might be thinking this is a huge global issue to be covered uh, by nations and state governments. Uh, you talk about a book which someone sent you called If Mayors Ruled the World, which obviously would have an appeal uh, to men and women such as yourself. So I, can you just explain why mayors might be the people to tackle this in a way that governments might not? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 the, the book you refer to written by, by, by Benjamin Barber, which had a profound impact on, on me. I, I was a frustrated parliamentarian who, who was fed up with being, you know, staying in my silo, you know, you know staying in my lane. Uh, but also the hierarchies within Parliament. And the, the, the joy of being a mayor is you don't simply have to rely upon the powers given to you by your respective Parliament. You can use the bully pulpit of City Hall to convene and to bring about uh, a change. So, you know, I'm not required by law to do the stuff I do or by Parliament, but it's because Londoners want this and because it's one of my priorities. And across the globe, you know, politicians who are on the left of centre, those in the right of centre, are doing remarkable things in their uh, city from Accra, uh, remarkable changes in their waste policies, improving air quality and carbon emissions. Freetown, Freetown, Treetown, planting millions of uh, trees. Paris, which was the first city to have 15-minute uh, cities doing remarkable things. Barcelona, really good things around street space. I worked with the mayor of New York. What he did was, when I became mayor, I recognised we've got these massive pensions in London that I'm responsible for. We're investing a lot of it in fossil fuels. Well, why don't we divest from fossil fuels and invest in the good stuff. Then working with the mayor of New York and 16 other cities, we've now divested $400 billion from the bad stuff and invested it in the good stuff. So, you know, we can't wait for parliaments, for prime ministers and presidents to wake up because they will kick the can down the road. And I would say, be suspicious of a politician who makes a promise for 2050 or 2060 because of the newsflash, they're not gonna be in that position at 2050, 2060. And what mayors are doing is taking action now, I, you've you've already talked about um, causes for optimism, um, Sadiq, and uh, there is um, there's an environmental activist that you quote in the book. Uh, I think it's at COP twenty six, and she says, "Don't watch the clock, just follow the clock. Keep do what the clock does, and keep going." And um, that's that's something that that absolutely chimes with me as well. And, and the reason it does is around the messaging around um, ta tackling environmental matters. Because often, right, so the best way of explaining this is in the, I, both me and Simon were working at Five Live um, in the sort of aftermath of 9-11. And I remember Five Live leading, it was probably a couple of months after 9-11, uh, leading on the fact that the government had uh, said that the threat level was now imminent. And... What could you do with that information? Well, the answer was, well, you can be more vigilant. And it's like, well, everyone's pretty vigilant anyway. We've just seen this happen. Just telling us that it's, the threat level is now imminent doesn't really help us on that. It also ties into the, you know, the sort of the the doomsday clock. We're going to move the doomsday clock to two minutes to midnight. What does that mean? Does that mean that doesn't mean the the world's going to end in two minutes or two days or two weeks? It just means the threat's really bad. The problem with that messaging is that because it's not specific enough, you end up going, well, there's nothing we can do. There's, there's very little. And yet there is cause for optimism. So I suppose my, this is a roundabout way of me saying that the messaging around environmental concerns always seems to be on the, it's really bad, everything's going to go wrong. 
and very little about the the positives. For example, we saw, you know, you, we've mentioned the COVID pandemic. I was listening to a podcast this week where Dr. Fauci was listening. This is before the pandemic. He listened to a play about a possible pandemic. And he was asked for his thoughts about, you know, whether it pick it apart, fiction or nonfiction. And he said, the problem with your uh, play is that you managed to come up with a vaccine in a year. And there is no way we get a vaccine within a year. And this is Dr. Fauci before the pandemic. We had a vaccine in people's arms within months. So if you take that messaging as being super cynical, everything's going to go wrong then people aren't going to buy into it. It's far, you're going to bring far more people with you if you say there is light here and, and, use, and use that message instead. Spot on. There's a chapter in the book uh, called Fatalism, which, which deals with just, just that issue. But look, let's talk about this city, real examples other than a pandemic, which is an extraordinary uh, event, clearly. So we're sitting, for those listening, so we're recording this in Spirit Land in, in King's Cross. If we were sitting here in the mid-19th century, You'd be saying, I suspect, God, what's that horrible stink? Uh, and what the horrible stink would have been is the great stink, open sewers. There were no sewers. And there was thousands of people dying from cholera. Uh, and what happened was brave politicians of that century decided to ask Bazalgette to build these great sewers, which led to a reduction in cholera, thousands and thousands of lives being saved, but a solution to a problem, right? If we were sitting here in the middle of the last century, uh, one of us would have been saying, uh, God, isn't the smog horrible today? We've just, you know, getting through the great smog, but you couldn't see literally, literally three metres in front mm. of you because our power stations were in the centre of our city, Battersea Power Station, what is now the Tate Modern and so forth. But brave politicians passed the Clean Air Act and removed from the centre of our cities these power stations, unpopular at the time, led to thousands of lives being saved. If we were here in the mid-noughties, all right, uh, we'd be saying, crack it, this tobacco smoking is causing a real problem. You know, I can't breathe properly and some would, and I'd be taking a... a Aspen pump, but brave politicians decided to ban smoking in public places. So history tells us, aside from a pandemic, mm. we can do in this country remarkable things when our politicians are bold and brave, providing leadership rather than followership. And the point is this, look, in a separate chapter, I'll do with the issue of hostility. A vocal minority can set the narrative or a silent majority can be educated in an unpatronising way to be part of this you know, coalition that is, is crucial to fighting climate change and air pollution. And here's the real point. Look, three of us are of, of, of a similar age. Um, we could be the first generation that gets it and finds solutions or the last generation that doesn't because our kids, Generation Z, they get it, man. They get it. So that's, that's, all, that's interesting stuff. And I wonder, bearing in mind, Sadiq, obviously everyone knows that you're the Mayor of London and you represent the Labour Party. The Labour Party, you were a Labour MP. Uh, for many years, um, I wonder if this your experience in writing this book in tackling this, these issues has made you less tribal. So one of the things that I recognise, because you self, have to be, but yeah, if you're building on, coalitions, spot on, spot on. you have to find spot on. good people on the other side spot who want on. the same things. Spot on. And one of the things, that, you know, self reflection. You know, when I was running to be mayor, is I mean, I was incredibly pugilistic. You know, listen, I'm, I'm a scrapper, right? You know, I, I was a, I was a litigation lawyer. Uh, you know, when I was my formative years were spent fighting, um, you know, small f, you know, arguments, you know, adversarial system. I've got six brothers and, you know, and all the rest of it and stuff. You're spot on. The most successful mayors are those that put aside party politics, are less tribal and can build coalitions and build bridges. And I, I have to teach myself 
to not prejudge, to give people the benefit of the doubt. I spent this week a good hour speaking to a guy called Lord Deben. For those listeners of Simon Matters and my age, this is somebody in Thatcher's cabinet, John Gummer. Mm. I I was I grew up hating him and his cabinet, right? Yeah, absolutely. And he, uh, he fed that food to his daughter. They had the Just, burger, yeah, the burger, the burger. That's right. Salmonella, yeah. And he is one of the most impressive human beings you'll speak to. And so you're right. I've got to put aside my prejudices and work with Lord Deben. Chris Kidmore. Uh, people, some of listeners may not know who Chris Skidmore is. He's a Tory MP who backed Liz Truss. Remember her? Yes. To be the leader of the Tory party and the Prime Minister. Chris Skidmore is one of the most impressive parliamentarians uh, currently in House of Commons, a Tory MP. And I can give examples of Green and Lib Dem uh, politicians, uh, and those, by the way, who are activists, who think we're all the same. And, uh, you know, you... What you've said is really important, and it's a, a reminder I say to myself, because because I spent 11 years in Parliament, you know, many of those on the front bench and so forth, you know, my instincts are to be tribal, and it's really important not to be when it comes to addressing this issue of, of, of climate change and, and air pollution. Um, I know some colleagues of mine who talk a lot about the climate emergency who would say the time for discussion is passed direct action is what's needed and sometimes you need to break the law to make your point what do you say to those campaigners look for, the, for those that so, so i used to not just be a human rights lawyer for for 11 years as well i was also chair of liberty the national council facilities in my spare time i was also chair of legal, legal action group chair of the oldest think tank in the world the fabian society pressure groups have a really important role in our society if you look back at the last 200 years Pressure groups, trade unions, and others have been integral to bringing about change in our society because politicians in parliament and the executive don't often get it. So I think it's a really important role for direct action, for groups like Extinction Rebellion, Just Up All, and others. What I'd say in a, in a non-patronising way is it's important, though, when you protest, in my view, uh, to protest in a way that's lawful, peaceful and safe. It's really important in my view to that. But also, I, I'd ask you to ask yourself this question, which is a question I asked myself when I was chairing these uh, press groups and think tanks. How effective is our campaigning? Are we bringing people to the cause or inadvertently driving them away? And how effective are we being at lobbying the decision makers? I'll give you one example. About two, three years ago, uh, during the time I was mayor, you had some of these protesters from one group jumping on a DLR train, jumping on the roof of the train mm. and stopping the train leaving the station. Now, public transport is one of the best ways to fight climate change. How is that effective, stopping that train leaving the station? Which led to, by the way, commuters on that train having fisticuffs with protesters from an environmental group. And so that's, I don't, I don't, I don't want to lecture people who've, who've, who've joined press groups. I think it's far, far more effective being an active citizen than a passive consumer. If nothing else, what I hope this book does is somebody who reads it goes from being a passive consumer to an active citizen. It could be joining a press group, joining a political party, lobbying your MP, you know, lobbying the mayor or, or whatever. I think we've got to take an interest in our society. And, and I say this as well, I am not a perfect radical green activist, right? I still will eat meat sometimes. I buy clothes that I knew rather than, you know, pre-loved or recycled i will sometimes fly i'm not saying we're all going to be you know vegans who you know never jump on a plane again we've all we could all play a role in our own way you've talked about um politicians working together you've talked just now about pressure groups i want to talk about the media 
um, and the role it plays in this debate. I remember um, Allegra Stratton, um, who took this sort of the environment environmental lead uh, under Boris Johnson. I remember her being, I think it was on Times Radio, where she was talking about um, uh, you know all the things that we can do to 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 help the environment. And there was a sort of there was a bit of a what what the presenter thought was a real gotcha moment when they found out that Allegra still had a car. And it was sort of, ah, so, you know, you've still got a car, but you're going to lecture us about um, environmental concerns, which to me always, always felt deeply cynical because, yes, she's got a car that doesn't stop her wanting to do something and and giving us the you know, a, a, a decent route out of this crisis. And I wonder whether you have frustrations with how the media tackles uh, the environment. That's sort of the very easy question of, ah, let me point out your double standards and hypocrisy and therefore dismiss your argument entirely because... Therefore, there's nothing we can do because you've still got a car and therefore we don't need to listen to anything you say. Yeah, this, this is the point where I, I mean, look, look, look at those people who are allies in this cause. So, look, you know, Mike Bloomberg, I'll give you an example. Mike Bloomberg is, I think, the seventh richest man in the world. He's a billionaire. Mike Bloomberg is helping fund cities around the globe deal with climate change. So the fact that Mike Bloomberg may use a private jet, does that make him not an ally? Leonardo DiCaprio uses his celebrity to raise awareness of these issues, not because he's been a hypocrite or holier than thou. He's saying, what can I do as a, as a celebrity to, to, to raise these issues? I feel passionately about this. And this is the point. Look, I'm saying there's things we can do as active citizens rather than as passive uh, consumers. And this gotcha moment, you know, is just, it's just, it's just cheap, right? Because the reality is uh, we can't escape the fact climate change is happening. I mean, if 99% of the scientists say it's happening, if 90% of the scientists say air pollution is happening, and if 99% of people say, of dentists say I need to have this sort of dental care, I'd follow them rather than the 1% of people who follow certain clips on YouTube. And that's 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 the choice we have to, you know, take action or inaction. But the fact that, you know, we're being imperfect, we are all imperfect beings, shouldn't be a reason not to follow, you know, uh, some of the science that's there, which is climate change is happening, air pollution is happening, but here's the good news, we can do something about it. Uh, final question, Sadiq, and there'll be more with Sadiq in our Q&A, which will uh, be with you in a couple of days' time. I was reading an article <clears throat> by Nick Cohen, who used to write for The Observer. He now has a substack. It's very interesting. And he's writing about mayors of London. And he, he's talking specifically about Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson. And he says there is something about the office of mayor of London which makes the holder want to be prime minister. Obviously, one of those aforementioned gentlemen did get to be prime minister and the other didn't. Is he right? Is there something about being mayor of London that makes you want to be prime minister? No, I can't say. I can't say what Nick said. What he said, uh, by the way, and if you're somebody who aspired since you were age nine to be the king of the world, then I can understand. I can understand uh, that. But I, I genuinely think there's a great there's a great saying. I, I, I use it a lot, and I mentioned it earlier on in this program about you know different centuries and where the action is. I think the actions are in the cities and the mayors. That's where the action is. Now, my frustration is that we are the most centralised democracy in the Western world. So so the power is hoarded in Whitehall and Westminster. And if, if, if the government means what it said about, you know, you know, taking back control, that should be devolved, not from Brussels to Whitehall, but to Greater Manchester, to Annie Burnham, to West Midlands, to Andy Street, to Merseyside. So we need to be devolving more powers to cities and regions. I get to spend in London, 7% <coughs> of taxes raised in our city, the mayor of New York, 50%. Governor Mayor of Tokyo, seventy percent. So what I what I would want is not to be the Prime Minister, but to persuade Prime Minister Keir Starmer, uh, when you know hopefully fingers crossed he's Prime Minister next year, to devolve more powers 
to cities and regions so we can be more in charge of our destiny. Uh, Breathe, Tackling the Climate Emergency is the new book from Sadiq Khan. There'll be more with Sadiq uh, when we do our Q&A, which will be with you shortly for the moment. Sadiq, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.